Welcome to the Mindful Medicine Podcast. I, Juliana Zapatel, will be your host, bringing in experts to discuss a holistic approach to well-being using Eastern philosophy and Western research. Today, I welcome Diana Shimkus to discuss mindfulness-based stress reduction. We'll dive deeper into the research behind this practice and how to take this off of your mat and into your daily life. My name is Diana Shimkus. I'm an LCSW, which means licensed clinical social worker, though it doesn't represent honestly very well what I do. I'm a psychotherapist, which is a person who does verbal therapies. And I've done that since 1979. And uh, I um, came to California in uh, 1984. And in that, when I came to California, um, I began to see, though I continued in uh, psychotherapy practice, worked with some institutions like UCSD, I began to see and sense a movement, um, not just from the traditional psychotherapy skill building, which I learned at Loyola University in Chicago when I lived there. I began to see this new wave of inquiry into the Eastern traditions and models. So I started to see more meditation being talked about. I started, right? Uh, And I became curious and interested myself. Uh, I didn't know much about it. That's not my training. Uh, That isn't where I went to graduate school. We had no access to that kind of thing. Uh, And then I went to Grand Rounds at uh, UCSD Medical Center, where I worked at the time. And John Kabat-Zinn was the speaker. I had no idea who this guy was. He His name sounded Svengali-like to me. I was like, he sounds like a wizard. I have no idea who this guy is. Uh, and his picture was even a little like intense and right, a little more eye contact than I was used to or comfortable with. I thought, I got to go see this guy. <laughs> and uh, on the way, um, I ran into him in the hall. I'll tell you that story later. And uh, I went to that Grand Rounds. I was mesmerized. And I thought, I've got to do this. And it was within probably a month of that that I signed up for the beginning trainings at University of Massachusetts Medical Center uh, and have since gotten all the trainings, right? Done all the stuff you've got to do and have been uh, teaching mindfulness now with that certification since 1996. When you did all these trainings, was it based on MBSR or were there other approaches as well to how to teach mindfulness? Yes. uh, So because at the time, uh, MBSR, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, began in 1979 at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center as developed by John Kabat-Zinn. So that's how it was born. Uh, So he was just starting to take MBSR into the healthcare uh, systems where when he developed it, that's what his vision was, that it would be offered in hospitals, in healthcare settings uh, throughout the world, really. Um, When I met him in a 90-something, mindfulness now had, MBSR specifically, had really been starting to get integrated and was, let's say, in 150 or 200 
different facilities in the United States and then other places. So um, there was only one place to get that training, uh, which was at the University of Massachusetts by those senior staff and John himself. And he began uh, the model of spreading mindfulness with healthcare professionals only. So you couldn't be anybody to get trained in mindfulness-based stress reduction. You had to be a doctor, a healthcare professional. You had to have credential. So even when I took it in 94, it was not, the training and teaching was not possible with just anyone. Uh, and so, of course, because of my previous credential in graduate school in psychotherapy, uh, in healthcare systems, and working at UCSD, set me up pretty nicely uh, to be a person they would have considered uh, for that. But the, all the training there was very specific to the eight-week MBSR course, which I still teach today. I come from a pretty different background because I'm trained in through yoga teacher training. So it's a lot more spiritual based and a little less scientific. So I'm just curious what you think about the secularization of mindfulness and if you find it beneficial for people or, you know, how do we find that balance of honoring some of those roots and the spiritual side too? Uh, John's number one investment was to get it into society the quickest, fastest, most mainstream way he could think to do. He, by the way, has a spiritual practice. He's a yogi. He uh, is a martial artist. He had a Zen teacher, San Sanin, uh, even when he was at MIT, which was also this science and spiritual uh, joining, right? It was a communion. He himself was that person. And so he, his thinking was, it will eventually expand to include others. I've just got to get it uh, where people aren't throwing it out like hospitals uh, right away. And he also knew that there would be research requirements and he wanted the hospitals to credibly begin research on this with their patients. So, right, you get what I'm saying. He was never uh, eliminating others from uh, the trainings or the teaching. He just started there because he knew without that backing, without that support and understanding, he understood like the Dalai Lama himself understands that without the science, uh, we in the West are not going to particularly uh, work materialistic and evidence-based, right? We wouldn't open to it um, like we have as a result of that first door, that first portal. So that's number one. Number two is I see this as a spiritual practice uh, uh, also, as well as for me, a life practice, a relationship practice, a being with life practice. By the way, I also see it as a death practice. Um, I'm interested in the impacts of death and dying and in illness and how mindfulness can and has impacted those very times, right, uniquely in life. Um, and so uh, I love that uh, yogis uh, have joined, uh, very important, uh, because really we're not saying anything too different. Really, it is mind and body, which is the essence of yoga. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
It's interesting. I've definitely seen this theme of um, the West needing research to prove things that have already been happening in the East for so long. Um, I just did this Ayurvedic training and we were talking about all these herbs you can use for different illnesses. And somebody who was in the room was studying her PhD at UCSD in the same science, but in a Western way. And she was like, this overlaps with everything I've learned. Um, But when it's said in an Ayurvedic context, it seems to have less gravity for people here. I think that's going to be somewhat consistently true for those here. It is specific, maybe even to the United States, more than maybe even Europe, where I think out of traditions and root lineages and right, I think there's even more of a kind of, well, we're a little more open. Uh, We are dramatically science based here. Right. Our healthcare systems are dramatically science impacted. Uh, John understood that a long time ago Mm -hmm. and really committed uh, to that. And then, of course, what we're saying is uh, what I've seen over the last 35 years is even then the Dalai Lama says uh, meditation as a spiritual practice alone is not sufficient. Uh, There's impacts to the mind body for healing, health, wholeness, for improved relationships, for better relationship to one's own body. And he really uh, then uh, probably 15 years ago charged the science community here in the United States with the job of you go prove how it works uh, because then your people, right? Your uh, communities will be more available and open to it. And of course we have seen um, that reality uh, continuing to happen. I think people often don't do what I call that deep dive that I think unless you're inspired like I was that day, and obviously like you were, um, what about those people who go, well, there seems to be something useful. Um, I don't know if I'm going to be a daily practitioner, but I'd at least like to get closer. I I, I don't know if we do our best job. And I'm going to use yoga as an example. Um, We have really related to yoga as an exercise. Uh, here in the West. And look at the paucity uh, that has resulted, which is people just use it for a stretch. Um, They use it for an activity. They use it as an exercise. But look at what's really there in yoga. Look at the eight limbs, uh, really, which are the principles, the values, right? Uh, And the teachings that are there that really have not uh, necessarily yet i don't think yet i have come along but there are more and more people like you mm-hmm. who are saying this is not only time on a mat just like i don't see mindfulness as only time on a cushion at all i see this as a lifestyle totally i always say my biggest pet peeve is when people say they're doing yoga when they're stretching <laughs> like Well, you're leaving out a lot of of what it is. Or most, let's say honestly, most of what it is. Uh, And there there were a lot and are a lot of yoga instructors, well-trained, very deep in their tradition and in their lineage who also teach mindfulness, who do bring the whole of that into uh, the work that they do, both in mindfulness and then in the yoga And that was the way to personalize um, that eight-week course. Also, there was a lot of room 
uh, in the curriculum, which I thought was beautiful for bringing your particular orientation. So I'm a psychotherapist. So by the way, I talk about anxiety and depression a lot in my class. Uh, maybe a yogi wouldn't uh, do that, but they would talk about the other benefits, right? Of the yoga in their lives, in relationship to their own mind bodies, right? Uh, in that unique way. And I have a deep appreciation uh, for John and MBSR. He left a lot of space for what is the art of this work and how do you live it? That's amazing. Uh, that's the first time I've heard that explanation of MBSR. I feel like I always hear it in a very scientific rigorous manner. Um, I, so I really enjoy that perspective and I'd love to dive deeper into what an eight week course really looks like and, and how you lead people through that. Yes, that's a, that's a really nice question. So in an eight week course, uh, when uh, I received and Julie Chippendale is an example as the yogi received that training, the training itself, the curriculum itself was pretty specific right? So you didn't do week four in week one, uh, because it really is stepwise. It really is built on the practices that you did that week. So if you didn't have an experience of the body scan, let's say, which was the very first practice in week one and two, if you didn't have that base, by time you got to week three, and we were starting to make movement from the stillness practice of the body scan, I'll describe it in a minute, to movement practice, you didn't have the stability of mind for it. Right. And so people uh, I used to in the old days, just let people enter into the course whenever they wanted. They'd come in week three. What did I see? They didn't have any of the skill. They hadn't uh, didn't have any stillness. They had no capacity to direct attention. They had very little ability to just in stillness, recognize sensations in the body, which is essential to the body scan and its practice. So the beginning starts with uh, bring the mind home to the body. Well, just like you guys, right? Just like you guys in stillness, however, cultivating a certain quality of attention to the body and body sensations, a quality of mind. And so that meant first turning the attention to the body but not in movement, first in stillness, touching in a progressive way, beginning at the head or toes. I just started at the toes, not required at all. Here's a part of the dance, right? And just resting attention in the toes, feeling the actual sensations in the toes. And really just that movement from not thinking about, but actually experiencing uh, right, was is a very big shift for people right away. And then the second shift is not looking for something in the toes, just experiencing whether you liked the sensations or you didn't like the sensations, where your mind stayed with the toes or they didn't stay with the toes, but that we really were turning a mirror towards the mind 
and its relationship to the body. That's a two-week commitment of the eight weeks just there. And uh, very much like in yoga as well, we use the medium of the breath along with the attention. Mm -hmm. So it isn't just put your mind uh, on the toes. It is, in fact, finding the breath in the breastscaper body and then moving the attention along with the breath down into the toes. And we uh, recognized in the research that that began a regulation of breath that we knew ultimately contributed to feelings of well-being and ease, calm and connectedness, right? That's all in the research, as well as provided a little bit of support for staying in that identified object uh, or area of the body. So that's the whole first uh, 25% wow. of course, right? Now, I'd have a question for you, which is don't you do something quite the same mm -hmm. in a yoga practice? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I find it really important to start the class with a short meditation to focus on the breath to find something to put your intention and attention on and to use that and leave that throughout the postural part of the class. That's right. And this is exactly the same. The intention part that you're mentioning is actually taught uh, in mindfulness-based stress reduction. Uh, there are some tenets uh, or foundational intentions, uh, things like beginner's mind, and non-judgmental awareness, things like uh, letting go, non-striving, trust, patience, right? Again, think about the eight limbs that you uh, have done your practice in. They're brought immediately uh, into uh, these practices and these teachings, but in a very um, non-religious, non-spiritual, really direct experience way. Um, and then we're invited to like uh, make contact with the sensations in the toes with beginner's mind. Well, as if, you know, you're a child in wonder experiencing the toes for mm -hmm. the very first time, right? And then we move from the body to objects. So we start then doing something like a raisin exercise, it's called, where we take a simple raisin and then invite all the sense doors, the hearing of the raisin, the smelling of the raisin, the taste of the raisin, the seeing, the colors, the shapes, the textures, the felt sense, and um, begin to teach uh, something called mindful eating. Mm -hmm. right, which we now move from that mat or cushion practice into the everyday life portions. Uh, we ask people to pay attention uh, each day in their trainings each week to particular um, observations like noticing when you're rushing, noticing when your mind has moved to the past or future, noticing um the opportunities in a day, um, gaps, you know, those sacred pauses that we find throughout a day to just stop and make contact, come back home to oneself and to, again, uh, 
reintention, recommit, uh, and move into that moment and the next in greater wholeness. Uh, we know, again, the research is very clear that uh, a person who sets in the first several thoughts in a day, intentions, and then calls them to mind throughout that day, lives a dramatically happier, uh, more purposeful and passion driven life and uh, realizes um, the commitments towards um, least harm and goodness and doing so right for um, that you and then beyond you. I love the way you said sacred pauses. That's something I use often in my classes. And I even try to leave a couple minutes at the end of class for people to pack up to say, take your time, continue this practice as you're packing up. There's you know, no need to rush, run to the car, throw your mat in the trunk, like continuing with that mindful action, even when you leave the studio. Yeah, I would say maybe especially when you leave, and maybe especially when you're getting off the cushion or the mat, because if you can't find some essential way to embody that practice, and then bring it with you into your life, it's dramatically limited. It's very sad to me to see people get up from mindfulness and rush to their cars. Um, <clears throat> we talk a lot about that, um, how to make these teachings, practices, uh, part of your everyday life. I do think mindfulness-based stress reduction does do that better than I think a lot of other mindfulness models that teach principles which are good and necessary, teach some practices. But I think that essential conversation about how do you live this? And then how do you live it, even then in particular for me, <clears throat> in times of uh, stress, in times of reactivity, in times of um, upset, confusion, um, right? In the uh, swirl of our everyday. Uh, lives. Mm -hmm. I'm curious when you're bringing up this idea of intention, is there a way they explain this in MBSR that is more understandable to people in the West? Because sometimes when I say set intention, people don't completely understand what that means. Yeah, I think intention, uh, the distinction uh, that MBSR makes, and I don't know if it's so much MBSR me, so some combination of those things is the mind's aspiration, my heart mind's aspiration for a way of being uh, versus an accomplishment, a goal, a result, right? That it doesn't have, um, I will today sell 15 things uh, as it's not an intention, it really, the intention is based on our own heart-mind qualities, which is why we teach it with some of those um, uh, words like beginner's mind, words like non-judgmental awareness, words like compassionate presence, right? To give people a sense that we are not striving to accomplish this, we are settling into a way of being just and in mindfulness very specifically 
just this one breath moment. Like that's the only one to realize. And that from that, the science says, well, if you have cultivated some patience in the present moment, you are fairly likely to be able to grow in skill uh, capabilities and qualities to learn how to sustain that in the next moment and then the next, and then even beyond that now, sustainability, even across circumstances, even when somebody cuts you off on the freeway, even when they didn't have the thing that you were promised at the store that day, even when the partner or the uh, friend or someone isn't acting or behaving in a way that we might want or prefer, that really these cultivated qualities are continuous. Um, they're available every moment and with practice, training, um, study, right? Uh, we are more and more capable of uh, offering that both to ourselves, right? And then to the world. Mm -hmm. Something I noticed with MBSR that's a little different is this aspect of integration that you keep bringing up that it's continues even when the eight week course is done, that it's not, you know, it's, it's a constant practice. And I recently read this article that MBSR long-term helped people with anxiety more than anti-anxiety meds did. Yeah, actually, uh, because I'm also a psychotherapist, right, who offers uh, practices, strategies, and understanding of uh, mood dysregulations like anxiety or depression. The truth is I teach primarily uh, those types of mindfulness practices. Maybe we can do one together uh, later as just an example. Uh, I actually saw anecdotally uh, 20 years ago or more that when I could teach someone a way of relating to their own anxiety, let's say, rather than just uh, uh, pill it away or medicate it away or anesthetize it right away, but to begin to form a relationship with it that's empowering, embodying, and that gives you agency in your life and then in, right, everything, including moods, uh, that the feeling, the felt sense, ex uh, generalized so much better than when I we handed somebody a pill. And almost immediately when we did that, the person felt broken, failed, like there was something wrong with them. D anxiety happens to be part of every human life. I don't care if you get an anxiety disorder or you don't, that might be slightly unique, but anxiety is something to know, isn't it? It's something to have awareness about. It's something to learn how to be with and that it's also a signal uh, for something that's also important about you, right? And so as I would teach this, people would say, not only now is my anxiety not the problem or the enemy, but I'm seeing the way I do that very, I didn't want that. I didn't like that. I want that to be different or go away in other areas of my life, in the relationships, again, I have, or it, with other experiences, not just anxiety, but let's say physical distress, 
right? Now I'm noticing my reactivity there and that there's also a cultivated way to be with in the full experience without resistance, without rejection, um, without having to cut off uh, a part of ourselves that actually is essential uh, to our being alive. I've definitely noticed that in myself with my own mindfulness practice, how it shifted my relationship to the anxiety. Um, Cause I, it used to be like an identifier. Like I was just an anxious person. I just had a disorder. I can't change it. It sucks. And now it's like, Oh, this anxiety is appearing. It's passing through me. You know, I feel the sensation in my stomach and I notice it and I watch it. And then I know that it ultimately leaves and it's a lot less of a, you know, angry attachment to that, that feeling. Yeah. Or a rejection of it. Uh, right. Like I don't even want to claim it. I just want it to go away. And then it becomes the enemy. And then by the way, uh, what triggered that becomes an enemy and we learn avoidance strategies or aggression towards that. And then, right. And it grows, right. You can even feel that like, Oh, this isn't going to go well because now I have to live in a cave uh, because of course, these are aspects of our humanness. Uh, the other thing that I think mindfulness does, um, let's just say with anxiety that I think is so important and maybe the second most important piece, one is recognizing it, the, right? And then really accepting, allowing, honoring it. The third is inquiring. Can we really look at it? What is this? What it's a, What is it about? you know, right. And learning, like you're saying, oh, something about both myself and the anxiety. And the other, I think, is starting to form what I call unconditional friendliness. Mm. A compassionate, loving response to the truth of our suffering. Mm -hmm. However large or small, really, a little moment of anxiety or, you know, a panic attack. That really, as we uh, show up uh, mindfully to our experience, uh, that's not the whole story. It is not sufficient that the showing up gives us now the opportunity, both for the inquiry that will tell us more about us and the experience, and then give us, I think, a possibility for a response. And the response is compassion, that I can start to feel for myself in my own struggle, in my own confusion, in my own not wanting or not liking, right? And there's a whole set of practices in the eight-week course near the end, in, in weeks really six, seven, where we focus on cultivation of self-compassion and compassion in general, right? We begin with ourselves always, essentially, uh, because can I feel for myself in this experience and then offer myself not only my own presence, not only my own kindness, but my understanding that I am in a moment of difficulty. Can I, it naturally then also extends to include others. Then another person who's anxious in the waiting room another person who's cutting us off on the freeway because they're late for an essential thing uh, doesn't 
uh, immediately evoke that aggression or aversion, uh, but actually can begin to invite uh, understanding and then compassion. And that's as important to me in the eight-week course as is learning how to be mindful in our everyday moments itself. Yeah, you put that in a, a beautiful way. That's something I've definitely learned in some of my trainings as well as uh, the second piece of compassion that seems to be often forgotten when we're talking about this. They're like, well, of course, I'm always still going to be frustrated or react with anger when something triggers me. But I'm like, but if you you know, do this practice of cultivating compassion and then you have it for that thing triggering you and then you have it for yourself for being triggered, it's almost like it all goes away in a sense. It's yeah, like, it's like a love. magic. It, yeah. uh, you know, it's a little magic-y, isn't it? Uh, and <laughs> it's not really. It is, uh, the science says, rather than the habit or autopilot of just contracting both mind and body. You know, we know, of course, in science now that your brain shrinks in a moment of reactivity. It isn't just your polyvagal system. It's not just your lungs contracting or your belly. Your brain just shrunk. You got shrink-wrapped uh, in that moment. And if we could, right in that very moment, actually wake up, with A, it's happening, and then B, how can I respond? That very opening, that response of, I can at least begin by A, recognizing that this is a moment of suffering, and then I can offer myself that unconditional friendliness. Rather than push me or it away, I can say, this is hard right now. Uh, this is challenging. This is scary. Uh, and that this is a part of the human experience. It's not that I'm broken. It's not that I'm deficient. It's not that there's something wrong with me. This is our human life. And we can, uh, in agency, decide, right? That choice-making consciousness, decide how now to respond. And we just practice it. You just start with hand on heart. May I recognize this as a moment of suffering and may I feel for myself. Uh, and we practice that in the community that I teach, right? We're practicing, can I feel for myself? And then all those just like me who feel this too, right? And look at the continued opening, just wow and wow and bigger and more and real right? It's not an idea. It's an actual experience. And so for me, I can't imagine teaching uh, mindfulness and somehow leaving compassion out of it. Mm -hmm. I'd love to do an example, like you mentioned earlier, um, just to share with people, you know, how this works, how they could try it for themselves. Yeah. So there's a couple of fun ways. Let's just do a little fun uh, uh, moment. And uh, the first one, I do this with teenagers um, a lot um, uh, because uh, test taking, you know, uh, pressures with peers, um, really changing continuously, like really virtually every day. And like, I don't even know who I am, let alone now 
how to be in my own body with others. And so we teach something we call a four by four anti-anxiety breath. And I'll share it with you. And uh, I get a lot of people doing this practice before uh, exams, before uh, uh, medical tests, um, before a distressing anticipated moment. So if you could imagine just taking two fingers and placing them extended out uh, in front of you here, and we're just gonna draw a square if you came up to the shoulder with the hand extended, and then you're gonna cross over the shoulder. I'm just gonna create the square with you. And then down to the left hip bone, and then back across the body to the right hip bone. So that's the square, up, across, down, and then across the body. And so now we're just gonna find the breath in the body, natural breath, no um, constructed breath at all. So we're just making contact. I lower my eyes for this uh, or close them. I don't need to see. It's a better to feel the breath in the body. And now with that hand extended out across from the right hip, on the in breath, you're actually going to lift the arm in time with the breath. And I'm in a count to four. And so as you find the in-breath, we're going to begin to lift the arm. One, two, three, four. Now we're going to hold going across the shoulders, going across the body to the left shoulder for four. Then we're going to go down for four, down the flank of the left body. And then we're going to rest for four, coming back across the hip from left to right hip. Okay, let's do it again. We're going to draw the square. One, two, three, four, rest, two, three, go across, down, two, three, four, and rest, two, three, four. We're going to do it again. Lift, two, three, four, hold, two, three, four, out, two, three, four, rest, two, three, four. One more time. In, two, three, four, across, two, three, four, down, two, three, four, rest, two, three, four. Before we open the eyes, we're just going to check in, feeling the sense of the body-mind, noticing whatever you notice. For most people, new learning, by the way, that little just four by four square, we teach that in non-reactive, non-distressing time, right? We teach it in shallow water time so that when the body gets activated, when the mind gets caught, when, uh, and we call that a 6.5 or higher on a 10 point scale right? On a distress scale, one being wonderful, 10 being terrible. Somewhere we know in there that four to six range is the really working range. If we can catch ourselves, wake up, recognize a moment of reactivity, autopilot or distress, we can in fact very successfully move that back down into that really easy, calm working range with just to 10 to 20 breaths. Isn't that amazing? 
Wow. But the catching, the catching is the key. Once you're at a six, we employ these very kind of interventions, the four by four square, hand dance, there's all kinds. What is the characteristic? Here's what the science says. A choreographed set of movements. Oh, that's like yoga. Attention and awareness of the breath in relationship to the movements. Oh, that's like yoga, right? Mm -hmm. A mental direction for the anti-anxiety. So we don't just leave the mind. We actually direct it to the counting, to the mantra, to the recite, repeat of the mind. We do not leave the mind out for wandering. In yoga, we place that mind on the movement itself, don't we? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we also do, look what happens in yoga. We count often in yoga, don't we? We go, let's hold, hold longer, three, two, one, right? We're offering that. So this very counting invites a certain choreography of mind, not just body. And then the fourth element is languaging. The very counting to oneself, one, two, three, actually occupies the language center of the mind, leaving it not uh, unguarded for random thoughts called, this is hard, I don't like this, why are we doing it, this is stupid, it occupies. So we've actually taken the whole brain, the neocortex and the amygdala, the lower brain and employed it towards healing. How effective is it? Very. Well, yeah, I've done breath like that, but not with the hand movement, which I think added a whole other layer to it. Yes. The motor planning center of the mind is actually quite large. Uh, and if left unattended, this is why stillness practices are tough for people to begin, right? Which is why sometimes breath with movement, and I have a lot of people in mindfulness saying this to me, can I just move the body? So guess what we do even in the body scan? I have them just as they breathe down to the toes. Remember when I said that's where I start the body scan? I have them tighten the toes, hold on to that tightness for a moment, not the breath, just the tightness. And then in an out breath, invite the release. Mm -hmm. feeling that sense, right? To give them a sense of a little bit of agency of body before we just place and train the mind. Now, by the way, what I notice is kids love this and everybody gives it up over time. They go, I actually don't need to do that. I actually have enough now control, authority, a capacity for directed attention that even the holding the squeeze and isn't necessary, but it's a beautiful support, especially at the beginning. And what do you have to say to people who maybe practice some of this stuff in non-traditional ways? Like somebody who doesn't like to get on the cushion and sit with stillness and breathe, but maybe are just, you know, small actions of mindfulness. Like when they cook, they are very focused on what they're doing and there's no sound or they're with their thoughts. Is that, do you see that to be just as effective in a way for some people or no? No, uh, actually, I think it's important as a support for our uh, practice. Do I think uh, 
Uh, and do I think every moment of mindfulness counts? Yes. Do I think it will ultimately lead, though, to a um, significantly more mindful, more attentive, more available mind? I have to tell you, we have a little research that says without that 60 breath practice, we've kind of gotten it down to some minimum numbers. 60 breaths taken on purpose with intention every day with just mind body without looking out to get objects or right without that cultivating mindfulness that can then serve you in the deep waters of our everyday lives is not per- going to be particularly available mm-hmm. that it is a training that it is a practice and that it does grow something uh, that both muscle of mindfulness i can stay even when the waves get bigger and then not only that i have some capacity to surf it i've got some ability that i can bring some oh i can choose to just be with me for a moment and then open uh all the noticing the stirring in of the cake batter in the bowl though it does count will not get you um that where now it's going to serve me in these uh, tsunami waters i call them of everyday life and yes they count yes they're helpful yes isn't it better to have any moment of mindfulness than none and the answer is for sure and i believe that a lot of people begin that way and i think that's great But, you know, my uh, charge, my invitation is to at least find your way to 20 breaths, just the body breath, just the noticing, and even in the counting, count if that helps you, at least three times a day. At least three times a day. We know that beginning the 20 breaths in the morning changes the way you'll do the day. We know ending the day with 20 breaths will change the way you go to sleep and the way you wake up. So now we just got to stick 20 more in there somewhere. And I often uh, suggest that people use those as uh, transitions from things like work roles to uh, getting to the car, to getting from the car to home or to family or to loved ones, that we can use those sacred pauses as real opportunities for gathering our whole selves, uh, including, right, our open hearts. I think that's a great way to wrap this up and really inspire people to begin this practice because um, you put it in such you know simple terms, 20 breaths here and there. And that, you know, is definitely helpful, inspiring for people who may be, you know, skeptical or, or scared to start. Yeah, it can be a little daunting when you think you're supposed to sit on a cushion in a lotus position for 30 to minutes to an hour. This is not the truth of everyday practice. It is a level of training, but actually we know that it's not the training that's required to change your uh, mind and change your life for the better. Yeah, well, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, is there anything that you want to share with people just to wrap it up? Any resources or? 
I would say yes. Go to the everydaymind.com website. There's lots of free meditations there, some of them fairly short, particularly those meditations in the teen section. Uh, there are those small practices like the four by four square anti-anxiety breath, the hand dance. These are all one to two minute practices that everybody can be inviting uh, throughout the day, as well as longer practices and including the very practices and audio tapes that we use in the MBSR course. They're right there online. 